I'm Shanna Benville, bringing you Lumpen Year in Review, the show that wraps up an eventful 2020 on Lumpen Radio. This year, we hosted over a thousand guests on our airwaves, debuted several new shows in multiple languages, and hopefully made your life a little easier during the pandemic. This wrap-up show contains selections from across our programming in 2020. It's not a best of, that would be impossible, but we hope it reminds you of the good times we all shared. And, as always, we bring you the year in Trump and AWCYFM to boot. It's Lumpen Year in Review for 2020. From all of us at Lumpen Radio, Happy New Year and our sincere wishes for a better 2021. Mario Smith and Jamie Trecker and the rest of our news desk were kept busy this year. From the global pandemic to the unrest in American cities this summer to a memorable election season, Lumpen Radio produced hundreds of hours of coverage. This is a selection from our talk with Senator Dick Durbin about the importance of the election. Senator, thank you so much for making time for us today. We really appreciate it. Happy to be with you. Senator Durbin, when we look at the, at the, um, the overall picture of, of the massive amounts of people who voted early, um, the, the enthusiasm to actually get out and, and, or, or to mail in a ballot or to, to, to go early and, and vote, what does that say to you? Two things. First, we may break every record in America in terms of turnout for this vote today when it comes to President of the United States, and I sure hope we do. If, if you have a thriving democracy with a future, you need voter participation. When voters vote with their feet and say, why waste my time? I'm not going to waste my time and my vote on these people. I don't trust any of them. That is not a good commentary on who we are and where we're going. If the opposite is true today, and we, we reach record-breaking numbers, uh, then that's an indication that folks have been following this very closely on both sides. We've got to be careful to say that on both sides. And secondly, of course, is this coronavirus. There are just an awful lot of people who said, why risk it? I'm going to you know, get a paper ballot. They tell me in Illinois they're going to give me an uh, opportunity to do that, uh, vote that way. I'll do it that way. Uh, and more and more people did it that way. Now, the interesting thing in history is once people start to vote a certain way, they don't change. Uh, we have a lot of African-Americans, for example, who don't trust a paper ballot. They don't think it's ever going to be counted. They want to show up physically, personally at the polling place. So we, we always have to have those opportunities for them. Others, historically, when they switch to paper ballots and voting early, that's the way they do it forever. That becomes their style. Five states in the union have all vote by mail. And you think, oh, Oregon, those liberals. Well, it's also Utah, and those are not those liberals. And Hawaii, I've forgotten all the others. But the notion is we're moving toward an easier way to vote, which goes to a, a larger issue. I, I don't want to take this any further than you'd like, but I look at the Republican Party and think to myself, it appears now that they've taken a hard look at the demographics of America and don't like what they see. The alternative to demographics is voter suppression. If you can figure out a way to reduce the voting population in groups that are going to vote against you, you've got a better chance. And a low turnout election, it can make all the difference in the world. But it's a heck of a thing to carry into the history of the United States. That for some period of time, you were trying to dream up ways of stopping people from voting. We have so little fraud in this country. You know, there's all this speculation. You look at the reality of it. How many cases of fraud are reported? It is minuscule. What we have with voter IDs and reducing early voting and the like is just making it tougher for people who are legally entitled to vote to actually vote. We ought to make it easier. Senator, I'm glad you brought that up because I kind of wanted to bring it back also to obviously the pandemic and the, the world we're living in right now. 
We're we're struggling, obviously, uh, here in Illinois, as you know, the upper Midwest has been hit very hard. Are you optimistic that regardless of who wins the White House tonight, that Congress can get together uh, and get a bill through the Senate? Uh, obviously, the House has passed a couple relief bills and they've sat on a certain senator's desk. But, you know, when the election is over, um, you know, many people are still going to be out of work. Many people are still struggling with hospital bills. And the case numbers obviously are continuing to explode. Do you have any optimism that a deadlock can be broken there for the American people? Uh, I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure. I'm hopeful that it will be. I've spoken to a number of my Democratic senatorial friends. Uh, even in the few days we've been back home, and they feel as I do. We've got to reach across the aisle. It's like I said, I, I believe in Nancy Pelosi's total package, $3 trillion package. We can't get that. The Republicans won't vote for that. But there may be enough of them to vote for $2.2 trillion, some of the categories I mentioned earlier. The question is whether the president, uh, if he is not reelected, still has an appetite for doing it. He promised a big bill. Maybe he'll do it. Maybe he'll want to leave on a positive note in that regard. I don't know for sure, but I think we, we need to try. We desperately need to try. There's so many people in businesses hanging by a thread. Yeah, and I just wanted to, to follow up again on, on something else you said. You know, the president has already said that he will go out and file suit at midnight tonight, you know, if he is not uh, reelected. And, uh, you know, the GOP, as you mentioned, has filed a number of lawsuits, uh, you know, before the election even started to try to get the uh, voter totals down in certain places to get ballots thrown out in places as disparate as Houston. Uh, they actually just filed, I, I saw that they're, they're trying to get the polls to stay open in Nevada for an hour longer. Um, what, what does this say to you, unfortunately, about the other party on the other side of the aisle? Because um, I would have thought that seeing so many people come out to vote across the country, regardless who, the, who they were voting for, uh, is a good thing for America because it could maybe bring us a little closer together. If people feel they have a stake in the election and actually got on and participated, it's a lot harder to um, say that you didn't have a chance to get your voice heard, and it's a lot harder, I think, to um, you know put down the other side. Remember, this is the first president in the history of our country who would not state the obvious, and that is that he would accept the outcome of the election if he lost. No one's ever said that before, and no one's ever suggested all of the conspiracies this president suggested about what's actually happening with paper ballots when there was no proof of it. Think of all the times in the news media when they had to print a disclaimer after the president's statement saying, with no evidence, the president said there's much more fraudulence with paper ballots over and over again. He is clearly reaching a point where if he faces defeat, he wants to have a fight on his hands and an excuse if he loses and it was stolen is going to be his excuse. And it just, it makes no sense. I mean, look back to 2000. Here's Al Gore and George W. Bush. They go through hanging chads. They go through state Supreme Court cases. Mm -hmm. They go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And at one point, Al Gore says, it's over. I'm not going to prolong this with more litigation, more appeals. It's over. Uh, we accept it that George W. Bush is president. And many people said, why did he quit so soon? Why did he quit? because he understood there was something more important than his name being on the door. What was important was to keep this country moving forward. I don't think this president gets that. I think if it isn't about him, it doesn't count. And I, I really believe what we may face, if this is a close election in some respects, is a lot of litigation, a lot of charges, and a lot of lawsuits. 
And God only knows what the conspiratorial theorists are going to come up with tomorrow as to what, what actually happened in America today. Hmm. Senator, before we go, I just wanted to ask, you've been campaigning and connecting to folks all over the state during this hard time. Um, and and what, what are the moments of, of hope that you've seen and what are, what are some of the things that you, you see kind of light at the end of the tunnel for this next year, however this uh, long this, this goes? John, you know, it, it, it's a tough time. It's tough in so many circumstances. Uh, one of your uh, hosts there tonight was talking about what he's faced personally. Uh, you know, and I, I do run into people struggling. I mean, going to these food banks, a lot of these folks are looking at their shoes when they're walking through there because they're thinking, last year I was sending a check to this place. This, this year I'm taking groceries home from this place. You know, mm-hmm. and so a lot of people are down and dispirited to some extent through no fault of their own. They may have been laid off or lost a job. Businesses, I mean, I can't tell you, you could walk me through Bridgeport and tell me block by block of restaurants and businesses that families have had around for generations and are now worried about reopening the doors and worried even more about those poor people who used to work there, what's going to happen to them. So the reality of the situation is it's challenging as anything I've seen in my lifetime, that so many people would be affected by this that so many folks would see their lives upended. You know, for my wife and I, we finally engineered some testing so our two grandkids and their mom and dad could come out from Brooklyn, New York, and spend two weeks with us in Springfield uh, in August. We hadn't seen them for six or eight months, and it hurt. And it still does. That was the last time we got to see them. So every family's going through some version of this, whether it's children, grandchildren, or just the family celebrations that, you know, the corner restaurant and the like, it's all been troubling. But I will tell you that we're going to get through this. We are definitely going to get through this. I hope sooner rather than later. I hope by the middle of next year at the latest we will have a vaccine being widely distributed and more and more people will have confidence that they can resume their normal lives. Uh, I, I want to say a word for Governor Pritzker. Not the most popular guy in Illinois, either downstate or in Chicago. He has to give us the bad news every day if things are not going well and suggest how we address it. And a lot of people are pushing back. But he's got a hard, hard job. And this, for a politician, the hardest of jobs to try to keep people alive. And that's what this comes down to. Uh, I, I, I just tell you, John, I, I went to Midway Airport many times over the last several months heading out to Washington. And I look at that airport and every person at the airport had a mask on. Every single person. And I thought, these folks get it. They understand they've got to do their part. And that kind of thing gives you some hope. Wonderful. Senator, we really want to thank you tonight. Um, Can you leave us with any good news? Are you optimistic about the national picture? Um, What's what's going to happen? Can you make any kind of prediction at all? Well, ask me when the votes are in. Okay. We can (laughs) do that. I'm a lot smarter on that situation. (laughs) But I'm looking at them now. 79% of the votes in, and Biden's got 50% in Florida, and Trump's got 49.1%, and I'm thinking 79% of the votes. Oh, man, this is going to be a late night. It's going to be a late uh, night. (laughs) I hope we can turn the corner in this country and move forward. We're great people, and I want to spend some time, and I hope we do, binding the wounds of this country. We've got to reach out and talk to one another more uh, across the aisle and show that we truly have our differences politically, but we're all Americans and in this together.
The boys from I-94 celebrated their 100th episode this year, capping four years of interviews with authors and writers from around the world. One of the best interviews this year was Lisa Tadeo, whose book Three Women was a summer blockbuster. And we're joined by Lisa Tadeo, calling us from the bucolic wilds of Connecticut. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm good. How well? How, thanks for having me. No, this is wonderful. Thanks so much for being with us. I mean, this book um, has really created, first of all, a splash. So congratulations on that. Uh, it's received rapturous reviews. It's been written up all over the place. Uh, New York Times bestseller as well. Yeah, I mean, first of all, congratulations. That's just an outstanding achievement. And we're always super happy when we see uh, booksellers actually being able to sell books. This is a great thing in this Mm -hmm. day and age. Did (laughs) you expect that when you started with this project? Because you were working on it for for several years. uh, And it seems like an unlikely bestseller in a way. Can you take us through a little bit about your process when you decided to confront this subject? Yeah, I um I had read uh, Gates Elise's Thy Neighbor's Wife, which was published in 1980, and it was a sort of pulse taking of uh, sexuality in um in the U.S. during that time, and I I like I read it, I liked it, but it felt to me like a very male take on a subject that I had never read a book about female desire written from a female perspective. And so that was kind of the genesis of my wanting to write this book. And I didn't really know where to start. So I drove across the country six times. I posted signs up all over the country on like gas station uh, windows and um, in car to go uh, in barbecue joints, uh, just uh, just basically everywhere. Um, and then the first thing I did for it was to move to rural Indiana, uh, which was kind of a, a weird move, but the Kinsey Institute was there where they study sex. And I thought that being close to that, that sort of, um, to, to, the, to the sort of um, epicenter of where one studies, that would be a good place to start. Can you visit the Kinsey Center? I didn't know that still was... Uh, around. Yeah. I, I know what it is, but I didn't know that it still existed. No, it does. It still exists. It's very, I mean, it's, it's very, it's a very um, clinical place. There's just, it's, it's all scientists who, social scientists and regular scientists and biologists working to really um, figure out how everything works and the reasons that we act the way that we do when it comes to desire. Can we talk a little bit also about the way you wrote this book, because it is a work of literary nonfiction, which is an interesting genre. We were talking about it among us uh, before the show started. And, you know, it's it's not a genre that was really very popular until the 70s or 80s. And mm-hmm. now, you know, they're teaching it in schools. But it's also a genre that's, you know, had its fair share of detractors. You know, there's something a little suspicious about the novelistic (laughs) techniques about something that's supposed to be factual. Can can you talk a little bit Mm -hmm. about why you made that choice? Uh, And, you know, later on in the the show, I do want to talk about the voices you use. But I'd really be curious about that because I know that you have a background as a journalist. You were a sports writer and uh, among other things. And I'd really love to know why you, you took that approach with this particular topic. Sure. So I had been writing, um, I'd been writing um, uh, nonfiction for Esquire and New York Magazine. So that was how I'd made my living for the past um, 15 or so years. But I had always written fiction. 
and actually my novel's forthcoming next summer. So I, I've never stopped writing fiction. I did not want to write a book of nonfiction that I didn't want to read. Uh, I'm not so much of a consumer of nonfiction, so I wouldn't necessarily read a book on a topic that I wanted to read about if it weren't written by a, um, a writer whose words I admired. So I kind of started from that that place of wanting to to write something that I'd want to read. And the second thing about that and the way that I told it was that I wanted the people to, the readers to be as inside these women's heads as possible because I knew that, um, I knew that being able to really see the specific lives of people, that specificity is at times the only way we can really empathize. And I think that combined with your empirical research, driving across the country six times, one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is that a lot of journalism these days isn't heavily researched. And I think, to me, that's why this book was so popular. A, it was written in a very readable way, and also that you did meticulous research um, you know, with three different women in three different places. And... To me, that's that's very impressive. I mean, how many years did it take total to uh, get this written? It was just about a little under a decade. Oh wow! You know, when I was I was reading, I I was thinking of an old. I think it's a an Emerson line in one of his essays or something about how um, with a lot of great literature, you read a sentence and it's it feels like something you already thought but you could never put into words. That to me is how mm -hmm. it, how it felt reading some of the characters, but then, you know, I take a step back and I, I realize kind of the artifice of what it is. It's you talking, it's not them. Did, did these three women read the book and kind of have that experience? Like, oh yeah, I guess I, I was thinking that, but I didn't put it into those words. Um, well, I had the book professionally fact-checked uh, and I also sent the book to all three women long before it was going to even be a proof so that they could say, you know, I didn't, I don't feel that way. I didn't mean that, et cetera. And surprisingly, none of them wanted anything excised, but they did want to add things. So it was really oh. an amazing process and they were a part of it in every way. Um, in terms of, you know, their, they did say the things that are in the book. Um, the, the things that I think is, uh, the reason that I think it's hard to sort of understand that is because I had spent years with each of them, texting with them, talking with them, going to lunch with them, going shopping with them. So when you do that much um, empirical research, that much, and not even research, but kind of, even though I always had a tape recorder or was taking notes, I also was having a relationship with them because it would be absurd to, to just say it was it was just a sort of clean you know interviewer interviewee relationship because after a couple of years it becomes obviously something more um so it was, it was like having it was like you know talking to your friend yeah. for several years your best friend whomever and only listening to them and not saying anything about yourself at all so the conversation is almost entirely 98 percent or so one way so having that much that much time, that much space to ask the same question numerous times, you you get something like that. I just think that because many people don't spend that much time on a human being, period, let alone a quote unquote normal human being, that it would seem you know like it didn't really like it was more more uh, an overview than an actual granular specific these women talking. 
I have a passage that was on uh, page 19 from Maggie's story that I think ties into what Mike said really well. And it's it goes as follows. He's the sort of man who will never contract an STD, no matter how many filthy women he sleeps with. And at a state fair, he will not leave without multiple cheap stuffed animals. His arms will be pink and blue with victory. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it, like they, I, did, did she say that? Or is that something that you intuited based on things she said? Because to me, it... It just comes across so clear. Yeah, it's like it's exactly what you were saying. I think Lisa, it's like talking with one of your good friends that they would mm-hmm. make an observation like that. And I like when I'm reading something, and you read something, and you're like, "Oh, I could have thought that." If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with that in particular, she told me about you know a time that he had gone to a fair and he told her about you know having come home with things for his kids and feeling so great, and she told me how much that meant to her it was like an attractive thing you know when it came to stds she said she felt safe with him because he was only with his wife that he was he'd only ever been with his wife or so he told her so you know it was something that she never she knew he'd never had anything he asked her how many sexual partners she'd had made her feel guilty asked her questions about you know whether she was clean or not so you know going and it's just kind of a specific going over and over Everything like that, um, knowing the details of someone else's life told through the person that's obsessed with them. We should also back up a little bit and talk yeah. a little bit about who the, the women in your book are. And you, you interviewed more women and then settled on these three to concentrate on. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So, so the main characters of this story are a woman named Maggie, a woman named Lena, and a woman named Sloan. And each of their cases is is fairly unique and please correct me i'm just going to give a little kind of potted recital for yeah. the for the listeners but please feel free to jump in maggie um has a relationship with a teacher uh and that is going to end up in a court case and um she's a student uh, she's a student and i'm uh, i'm i'm not going to spoil it but i'm going to say things don't work out very well uh lena goes through a a breakup in her own marriage and then uh has a relationship with an ex who is I don't believe this is spelling anything, but he's kind of a toad. Um, and Sloane <laughs> is an upper, uh, she struck me as a very upper class woman whose husband uh, brings home other men and women for her to sleep with while she watches. And then uh, it turns out that one of these partners has not been as forthcoming with their own partner as uh, they might have been. And this backfires somewhat on on Sloane. Um, these are three fairly different uh instances of both female desire but i also felt female power and powerlessness um the two people in particular i would say lena and maggie were were pretty interesting to me and well in both of them early sexual experiences one was a rape and one was statutory rape which you know is very common in our society but when your sexuality is developed in that fashion it's got to skew the way you think about things yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one Maggie actually her case had personal resonance to me. Um, there was a case when I was in high school of a theater um, teacher who was molesting students at the school, and uh, this happened to a yeah. very good friend of mine. Um, he was arrested uh, and uh, obviously kicked out of the school, but her her case uh, resonated quite a bit with me because I remember my friend telling me about this relationship when we were both you know fifteen and sixteen years old mm-hmm. in high school. Could you talk a little bit about, if we, if you don't mind, if we start with Maggie, talk yeah. a little bit about her case and her experience and 
why this was an important story to tell in the first place. Well, I was in a um, coffee shop in Medora, North Dakota. I was researching this other possible story about a group of women being um, who were illegally in the country being trucked into the local oil fields to have sex with the men who worked there. And this was kind of early on when I really don't didn't know what the sort of book would look like. I never actually did until closer to the end. But um, while I was there, I read uh, a local newspaper. And in that paper, it had the story of Maggie, who had just brought charges against her t- teacher, former teacher, for an alleged relationship when she was underage. And the jury had seen it in a way that I was that quite shocked me, especially since there were these hundreds of hours of phone calls after 11 p.m. and midnight, and some most many of them in the direction of the teacher to her. So I drove to Fargo the next day. I called her house, spoke to her mother, and explained what I was doing. Man, the reason Maggie's story was so important to me was because, and I felt differently about it than I felt about the others because with Maggie's I really felt like telling her story to a wider audience would do something for her and I explained to her and this was way before me too so it was kind of a leap of faith on on her part and and it was kind of a a hopeful very hopeful um, idea on my part but I said you know your town does not believe you. And I, I just think that a wider audience of people in different parts of the country and maybe hopefully the world will feel differently. Harry Brenner of the Chandeliers has generously been providing all of our interstitial music this year. Harry provided us with this brand new track. It's called Pursuit and it appears on his forthcoming album.
This year on the Trump Diaries, on day 10,078, Iran's top security and intelligence commander was killed by a drone strike in Iraq. An American Reaper drone filed missiles into a convoy that was leaving that airport. The attack was authorized by Trump. He did not tell Congress. On day 1,092, January 16th, the House of Representatives sent the Senate two articles of impeachment against Trump, initiating just the third presidential impeachment trial in American history. Only one Democrat joined every Republican in voting no. The Senate opened the impeachment trial with Trump tweeting, quote, I just got impeached for making a perfect phone call. On day 1106, January 30th, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said the Chinese coronavirus epidemic, quote, will help to accelerate the return of jobs to the U.S. The Commerce Secretary then said he didn't want to talk about a victory lap over a very unfortunate disease. On day 1107, January 31st, the Senate voted to block witnesses in Trump's impeachment trial. Just two Republican lawmakers broke ranks. That vote ensured the trial was the first impeachment in U.S. history without any witnesses, and it also effectively ended the trial as the Senate will now move to acquit Trump. Lamar Alexander said he believed Trump's conduct was inappropriate and that Democrats had proven the case against him. Nancy Pelosi called Republican senators accomplices to the president's cover-up. On day 1111, February 4th, Trump refused to shake Speaker Nancy Pelosi's hand after entering the House chamber. Pelosi, in response, tore up his speech in full view of cameras. Day 1112, February 5th, saw the Senate, as expected, vote largely along party lines to acquit Trump in his impeachment case. Mitt Romney broke ranks and voted to convict, saying the case was proven. White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham claimed Trump's acquittal was a full vindication and exoneration, and that only the president's political opponents, all Democrats and one failed Republican presidential candidate, voted for the manufactured impeachment articles. Trump then delivered a long and rambling speech in the wake of impeachment, claiming Democrats were evil and corrupt, and then said bizarrely it was dirty cops, it was leakers and liars. Trump then called the leaders of the opposition vicious and mean and said he would begin to exact payback. Trump subsequently fired the national security official who testified about Trump during the impeachment inquiry. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who heard the phone call Trump made to Ukraine's president that started the entire impeachment saga, was escorted out of the White House. Meanwhile, FBI Director Christopher Wray warned that Russia was engaged in information warfare against the U.S. heading into the 2020 election, exploiting Facebook's unwillingness to remove false political ads. Trump called that assessment that Russia was meddling hoax number seven and added it was another misinformation campaign by Democrats. He then fired the acting director of national intelligence and replaced him with a Trump supporter. On day 1132, February 25th, Trump claimed the coronavirus is going to go away and that it is very well under control in our country. We think they'll be in very good shape very, very soon. This was dismissed by WHO, the CDC, and lawmakers of both parties. Donald Trump Jr., then appearing on Fox News, claimed Democrats want millions to die so they could end Donald Trump's streak of winning. It is a new level of sickness. Mick Mulvaney also said that Americans should ignore the media's coverage of coronavirus and claiming that the media was covering Trump's impeachment because they thought it would bring down the president. Mulvaney then claimed the media only switched to covering the coronavirus because they think this is going to be what brings down Trump. He then told Americans, quote, turn off your televisions for 24 hours. 
On day 1137, March 1st, Trump called the coronavirus the Democrats' new hoax and accused the party of politicizing the virus. Trump then blamed the press for acting hysterically and compared the virus to the flu. Trump claimed he had a natural ability to understand the coronavirus, saying, quote, people are really surprised I understand this stuff. Every one of these doctors said, how do you know so much about this? In fact, staffers have had to explain the concept of antibodies to Trump multiple times, including once in public during a press conference. He does not seem to grasp vaccine testing or manufacture. On day 1140, March 4th, Joe Biden won Super Tuesday. On day 1148, March 12th, it became apparent that despite Trump's denials, the fast-moving coronavirus was changing the USA overnight. Claiming he was using two very big words, Trump declared a national emergency. He then said, quote, I don't take responsibility at all for the lack of available testing. When asked about his closure of the White House's pandemic response team in 2018, Trump said that was a nasty question and denied firing the team, saying, I mean, you say, you say we did that. I don't know anything about it. On day 1152, March 16th, the Dow suffered the worst one-day market crash since 1987, with the index dropping 3,000 points. That was a 20% write-off on the market. Trump told Americans to avoid all public places for the next 15 days. Trump then proceeded to give his administration's response to the epidemic a 10 out of 10, saying, quote, I think we've done a great job. On day 1156, March 20th, New York ordered all residents to shelter in place, essentially closing the largest financial market in the world. California and Illinois also issued unprecedented stay-at-home orders. 100 million Americans in a dozen states are now in lockdown. In response, Trump went on a rant about the Deep State Department. That caused Dr. Anthony Fauci to hold his head in his hands behind him. And in Texas, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said that in order to jumpstart the economy, older people should be willing to die. Trump then said he wanted the country to be opened up and raring to go by Easter. Trump predicted there will be tremendous death, death from suicide, because our country wasn't built to be shut down. The cure is worse than the problem. On day 1170, April 3rd, the CDC recommended that all Americans wear face masks when in public. Trump immediately undercut that advice. Confronted with a possible rise in mail-in voting, Trump began his campaign against it by telling Fox News that if ballots moved to mail, quote, a Republican would never be elected again. I think a lot of people cheat. While Trump claimed that mail-in voting is horrible and corrupt, he admitted he actually had voted by mail himself. Trump also told Congress he would sign no legislation that contained any funding for the U.S. Postal Service. Trump said he doesn't want to fund it because he believes it is subsidizing Amazon. On day 1184, April 17th, Trump encouraged protests in Minnesota and Michigan against Democratic governors who are struggling to contain the spread of COVID-19. Trump sent a series of tweets calling on people to liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, and liberate Virginia. Save your great Second Amendment. Trump then claimed that an injection of disinfectants could be a cure for the virus. During a briefing, Trump said, I see the disinfectant that knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that by injection inside or almost a cleaning? As you see, it gets in the lungs. It does a tremendous number on the lungs. So it would be interesting to check that. Trump then wondered if you hit the body with tremendous light inside the body, because the whole concept of the light, the way it kills in one minute, that's pretty powerful. Trump, pointing to his head, added, I'm not a doctor, but I'm like a person that has a good you-know-what, so it would be interesting to check that. Subsequently, Trump stopped holding coronavirus briefings. 
On day 1,225, economists said at least 20% of the nation was out of work due to the pandemic. On day 1,225, May 28, the United States officially passed 100,000 dead from the coronavirus. That is the population of a good-sized small city. On day 1,227, May 30th, America convulsed in massive protests against police violence, with 75 American cities seeing demonstrations. In major cities, outside agitators, identified as criminal gangs and white supremacists, looted neighborhoods and set fire to buildings. In Chicago, the entire downtown area was cordoned off after the Mag Mile was ransacked. The National Guard was called in. Those protests were set off worldwide by the death in police custody of George Floyd. Trump responded by calling the protesters thugs and said they should be shot. Quote, any difficulty, we will resume control, but when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Trump also took shelter inside an underground bunker for nearly an hour in D.C. as protests raged outside. Trump accused the demonstrators of being professionally managed so-called protesters and said his supporters should confront them. Tonight, I understand, is MAGA night at the White House. On day 1230, June 2nd, Trump gave a pugnacious national address for the seething national climate. Trump said he would deploy the military in states that did not yet deploy the National Guard and called for an immediate curfew to protect your Second Amendment rights. That is a tacit dog whistle calling for violence. Demonstrators booed Trump during his speech. Police then used tear gas and flash grenades to clear out a peaceful crowd so Trump could visit nearby St. John's Church and pose for photographs with an upside-down Bible. On day 1,238, June 10th, viral cases in the U.S. passed 2 million. And Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin told Congress it must pass new economic stimulus legislation. On day 1,250, June 22nd, Trump's attempt to revive his re-election campaign fizzled as crowds failed to turn out at a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A 19,000-seat arena only had 6,200 people show up. Trump was said to be stunned. Trump was pictured dejectedly walking back to the White House for Marine One after the rally. On day 1,270, July 12th, Trump held a rambling hour-long news conference to launch a diatribe against Joe Biden. Trump claimed his opponent would incentivize illegal alien child smuggling, abolish immigration enforcement, abolish police, abolish our prisons. He alleged Democrats wouldn't mind if terrorists blow up our cities, and he then claimed Joe Biden would ban windows. I'm not making this up, claimed Trump, which of course he was. Secretary Betsy DeVos increased pressure on schools to fully reopen by the fall, saying if schools aren't going to reopen and not fulfill that promise, they shouldn't get funds. Trump also said he would deploy as many as 7,500 federal agents into U.S. cities as part of his surge against violent crime. We'll go into all the cities, any of the cities. We're ready. In response, Joe Biden called Trump a racist. On day 1,283, July 25th, Trump said that the pandemic will go away like things go away. Only a relatively small portion of the country is seeing increases in cases. In fact, America just passed 4 million cases. On day 1,290, August 1st, the U.S. Post Office began to experience day-long backlogs of mail, particularly in major hubs and large cities. The White House also explored executive actions Trump could take to curb mail-in voting. On day 1300, August 11th, the Democratic ticket was set as Joe Biden selected Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate. On day 1312, August 23rd, Trump told a crowd, I'm the only thing standing between the American dream and total anarchy, madness, and chaos. 
Trump then claimed that voting by mail is filthy a disgrace and would lead to the greatest catastrophe ever. He also said that violent mobs were overtaking U.S. cities. On the same day, all sports in America stopped in a boycott following the shooting of Jacob Blake. It was American sports' strongest statement yet against racial injustice. On day 1,317, August 28th, Trump accepted the Republican nomination on the White House lawn. He made a sneering 72-minute speech that began, I'm here and they're not. Nearly 2,000 guests on lawn chairs were packed into rows with few wearing masks. On day 1,330, September 10th, Trump refused to express empathy toward black victims of police violence. When asked if Trump was working, quote, to understand the anger and the pain particularly black people feel in this country, Trump replied, no, you really drank the Kool-Aid, didn't you? Just listen to you. Wow. No, I don't feel that at all. On day 1,336, September 16th, forest fires were breaking out up and down the West Coast with the capital cities of Salem, Oregon and Sacramento, California under immediate threat. Hazardous air stretched from Sacramento to Seattle and a toxic band blotting out the sun. Trump refused to give them a federal disaster proclamation. On day 1,338, September 18th, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died at age 87. Ginsburg dictated the following statement days before her death, quote, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. Trump ignored that and moved to install Amy Coney Barrett. Trump was loudly jeered as he visited Ginsburg's flag-draped coffin in Washington. A crowd gathered to honor the liberal justice loudly and clearly and heckled the president with chance of vote him out. On the same day, Trump refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power after the election. Trump replied, get rid of the ballots and you'll have a very peaceful, there won't be a transfer, frankly, there will be a continuation. On day 1,340, September 20th, the New York Times acquired Trump's taxes. It revealed Trump paid no federal income tax in 11 of the 18 years the Times examined. After he became president, his tax bill was $750. It was also shown that he's received far more money from foreign sources and U.S. interest groups than previously known. On day 1,352, October 2nd, Trump, his top aide, and the First Lady all tested positive for coronavirus, throwing the election and the government of the USA into chaos. Due to Trump's disdain for masks, his staffers do not wear them around him. On day 1,358, October 8th, the FBI arrested and charged 13 people in an alleged plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and start a civil war. The FBI said messages from certain politicians, without naming Trump, to liberate Michigan directly contributed to that plot. On day 1,384, November 3rd, America voted. On day 1,385, November 4th, Democrats had secured the House but appeared to leave the Senate in Republican hands in a razor-thin election. Trump baselessly claimed fraud and demanded that all voting must stop. Protests roiled American cities in response to Trump's effort to challenge the vote count, demanding in some places that officials stop the count of ballots. On day 1,388, November 7th, Joe Biden was officially confirmed as the 46th president of the United States, with an overwhelming win in the Electoral College and more than 6 million votes in the popular count. Biden's win was greeted with wild celebrations across the world, fireworks were set off in London, Paris's church bells rung, and people danced in the streets of New York, Philly, Atlanta, and Chicago. Meanwhile, Republicans refused to congratulate Biden publicly. Trump was greeted with chants of loser, loser, as he returned to DC. Shortly before news organizations called the race, Trump tweeted, I won this election by a lot. 
On day 1420, December 9th, the U.S. surpassed 15 million coronavirus cases, increasing by a million in just five days. There was a record death toll with 16,000 Americans killed in a single week. That is the highest anywhere in the world. On day 1425, December 14th, the Electoral College voted to confirm Joe Biden as the 46th president. The Supreme Court also tartly rejected Trump's final long-shot attempt to invalidate the will of the people. Republicans in the House are now looking at January 6th, that is the official day that Congress certifies the vote, as a possible place to challenge Biden's win. Trump is diverting 75% of donations for the Georgia Senate runoff elections to his new Save America Political Action Committee. That fund has been called a slush fund by analysts. On day 1430, December 19th, Trump discussed imposing martial law at an Oval Office meeting with Michael Flynn and conspiracy theorist and alleged lawyer Sidney Powell. Flynn told Trump he should declare martial law and use the military to rerun the election in swing states. Trump asked his aides if this was possible. On day 1435, December 24th, Trump unleashed a flurry of pardons, including that of four Blackwater contractors who massacred unarmed Iraqi civilians, including innocent women and children. Trump also pardoned Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, and George Papadopoulos in a continuing attempt to undermine the Robert Mueller inquiry. On day 1437, December 27th, Trump refused to sign a relief bill, throwing that entire process into chaos. Trump claimed he wanted bigger checks for Americans, which gleeful Democrats swiftly passed in the House. But Mitch McConnell blocked an effort in the Senate to raise the payments as he wants to turn sharply to austerity under Biden. The CDC also predicts today the U.S. will see 400,000 coronavirus deaths by January. These are the Trump Diaries. The John Daly Sessions, our Tuesday Drive Time Showcase for live music from Chicago, had to be put on hold due to the pandemic. It will return in 2021. This is a selection from one of our favorites, a cut from Cold de Genova recorded live in Studio A. It was produced by Ari Schellist. Filling up my head, careful as we wipe the tears from my eyes. 
bottom in a pot Mining all the thorns that have grown inside She's just a season away from leaving Download complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity, imagine science. Alright, this is the AI training for Safer Santa version 0.76F. The date is 10-23-2019. I have four permutations of the storyteller loaded in. 0, zero. 0, 01, zero, 02, and zero, 03. Santas, execute the hello world command. Hello world. Alright, alright, let's begin. Uh, preliminary testing. Initiating the jolliness method. Go, go, go. Alright, uh, sounds good. Let's try that again. Go, 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 go. That's no good. Uh, one more time. Go, go, go. Right, uh, time for something a little more complicated. Running test case 5.4B, drummer boy. Come, they told me. Pum, rum, pum, pum, pum. A newborn came to see. Pum, rum, pum, pum, pum. To lay before the king. Okay. Okay, let's try something different. Resetting 00 and 03, and initiating a cross instance mediation pattern let's call happiest underscore time entering query to zero zero what is the happiest time of the year christmas time of course ho, ho, ho. what do you want for christmas little boy milk and cookies by the fireside what do you want for christmas little boy grandma under the mistletoe ho 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 the elves are here. The elves Say hello, here. child. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. How about some eggnog from Mrs. Claus? Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Have you been naughty or nice this year? Time to stuff your stockings. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Okay. Merry That's Christmas. More than enough. Um, okay. Okay, let's load a fresh four. Permutations 04, 05, 06, and 07. Santas, execute the Hello World command. Hello World. Great, great, great. Uh, okay, we'll start. Eureka cast now. Broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. 
The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Thank you.